You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Wednesday, August 5th, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. We're skipping the intro today because some of our folks here in the tri-state area are still without power from the tropical storm. Ed, welcome back. Yeah, thank you, Ash. It's a uh, difficult day in, in many ways. I mean, you talked about the uh, storm in the tri-state area there. We, we, we had it as well. But in Beirut, uh, you know, where 300,000 people have been displaced and, you know, there are hundreds dead, uh, our solidarity is definitely with them today. And uh, it's, it's been a difficult sort of human tragedy uh, over there. Yeah, very difficult. The video, hard to watch, frankly. So, uh, you know, it's hard to talk about markets in that context, but there are a decent number of numbers that have been coming out in the U.S. that I'm looking at and uh, thinking about in terms of what the U.S. economic situation is. Yeah. And one of the things that we spoke about this morning were the ADP uh, payroll numbers. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so the ADP payroll numbers were really, really weak. Uh, in fact, they were projecting 1.5 million uh, jobs added in the last month, and we only got 167,000. So, I mean, when you talk about uh, misses, that's a gargantuan miss. It, first of all, it tells you the scale of the job loss slash gains that we're talking about as a result of the pandemic. And it gives you a sense of how difficult it is to forecast in this environment. But in addition to that, really what it points out is, is that there is definitely some slowing that's going on, that we are definitely seeing uh, slowing of the U.S. economy. You can't only add 167,000 jobs in July without it being a sign that things are not well in the U.S. economy. Yeah, you know, it also, for me at least, reminded me of another theme that we've talked about and that you were early to the party on, which is just how distorted uh, these jobs markets numbers have become in the wake of coronavirus. Now, markets basically shrugged off this hideous number, 167,000 new jobs, when a million were supposed to be added. Uh, we're up on the day. The uh, S&P closed at 3327, uh, up about half a point. And what this tells you is that markets, for whatever reason, are discounting that number and believing that it is not in touch with reality. And in fact, if you look at ADP uh, and other jobs forecasts, they've been dramatically out of sync with the actual numbers uh, that come out from the official reporting agencies. So it's sort of what you were saying, Ed, about how the, the predictive uh, analytics, the, the whole framework uh, of interpretation for these numbers works really well when you're between A and B, but when you go from uh, A to W, those numbers fail you. And you know, uh, you mentioned the the pandemic and coronavirus. A lot of people, every once in a while, they're like, "Why are you talking about coronavirus? Why are you uh, speaking about the pandemic?" I didn't come here to talk about the pandemic, uh, but the pandemic is everything right now, everything that we do. The reason I'm in this room where I am right now is because of the pandemic. Otherwise, we'd be doing this broadcast 
in uh, New York City where you are, but I'm here for that reason. Everything that's going on in the economy is directly affected by the pandemic. And so when we talk about the pandemic, we are thinking about the economy, we're thinking about markets, but from the position of how is the pandemic, how's coronavirus related to what's going on? A perfect example is this uh, ADP number that you're talking about, how difficult it is to forecast and also how weak that number is in the wake of a second wave of coronavirus. So the question is, is that 167,000 number, is it really suggestive of uh, absolute weakness or is it a combination of weakness and just the, the, the variability and numbers that we get as a result of uh, the coronavirus? So I think that's really how we have to think about things right now. The coronavirus is basically dominating economics and finance. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, for me, Ed, the two topics uh, that I dislike talking about most are the coronavirus uh, and number two, which is probably actually number one, is politics. But unfortunately, this is just where we find ourselves. Our remit is to cover markets, to cover the economy, uh, and to cover uh, what's happening that's driving those two things. And unfortunately, there's just no other way to do it. I mean, not talking about coronavirus and not talking about the election coming up in in uh, in November would be like uh, covering markets in uh, in 1941 without talking about the war. <laughs> exactly. Because as you know, it's been a long time since I've talked about a war. It's a war that we want to win. I look at this definitely as a war against the virus. And we are actually losing the war in the United States at this moment. I mean, we're not losing it abjectly. If you take a look at the PMI numbers, because you know, I was looking at the composite PMI that came out from market for the US, the numbers came in at 50.3. That was the composite PMI number. The 50.0 you know, right on the dotted line number, that was the expectation. So we are slightly into growth uh, based upon the PMI, and we also slightly beat expectation. The question is, unfortunately, again, because of coronavirus and the second wave, what's going to happen to that number going forward? And it's still very much uh, unclear what's going to happen. What we do know is, is that the numbers were probably going to roll over. They certainly have in terms of employment, but we should expect them to roll over both in terms of uh, production as well as consumption. Yeah. And, you know, as we've said so many times on this broadcast, this is a diffusion index. It's an oscillator. Numbers above 50.0 represent expansion, uh, but it is on a relative basis from prior months. So if you have a significant series of contractions month after month after month, as we've had, uh, then even positive prints are not getting you back to where you were. So it's not like a stock going, for example, from uh, 75 to 50 and then going back to 75 and you say, okay, we're, we're even. It doesn't work that way. These numbers are cumulative and they're about the figuring out where you were relative to where you started. And that is down, down, down. Yeah. And, you know, uh, just to uh, piggyback on that, the, as you know, the number 32.9, that was the GDP number that we got, the preliminary number for Q2 2020, that works out to be 9.5% on an absolute basis. The number that people are talking about now is around 
17 percent uh, annualized for Q3. The GDP now number is up to about 20 percent at this point in time. That's the Atlanta Fed's now cast number. So when we talk about 32 percent down annualized and then an uptick of 17 or 18 percent, 20 percent, that's not going to get you all the way back to where you need to be. And even that number is now uh, in jeopardy. So when you talk about uh, you know the 50 not getting you where you need to be, that, that's a perfect example of how. You know, let me just say, going back to the uh, coronavirus and pandemic, the numbers for Sweden came out um, this today, and they were better than the rest of Europe. The, the eurozone, they beat the eurozone by uh, three or four uh, percentage points. And so the question is, is what is the uh, what can we take away from that? And what does it mean for us to how we think about the economy going forward? I mean, the way that I've been putting it is, is that we all want to get to the Swedish outcome. That is, is what we want is what we want to get to an outcome that is sustainable over the longer term and that is minimally uh, restrictive. And that's going to be the outcome that gets you to uh, something that will be sustainable over the long term, that will keep your economy going. The, the United States has tried to do that uh, through the back door uh, without doing all the necessary things in terms of social distancing, et cetera. And as a result, we've seen you know, a catastrophic second wave. But if you can keep the numbers going down, then you can get to that point and then we can move forward in a new normal that's not like the old normal, but is as close to the old normal as we possibly can get. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see the the, the relative outperformance of Sweden and uh, different policies uh, taking place there. I remember talking to one of my Swedish friends earlier in the crisis, uh, and his exact words to me were, "You know, we have scientists too, and we're looking at this." Uh, and uh, so it is interesting to see this diversity of approaches uh, throughout the world. The other interesting thing about the United States versus, for example, Sweden uh, or uh, or France or the UK is we have a far greater uh, proportion of authority devolved onto the state level here, meaning that meaning the actual states, not state nation state. So we have a, a diversity of, of responses here in the US. This isn't something that we see in Europe, uh, in Germany, in France, in Sweden. These decisions are made at the federal level rather than at the local level or state level. Uh, and one, one more thing on the coronavirus that I think is interesting to, to note because uh, in Europe, the numbers are low in Europe. If you look at a, a, a chart and you look at the case numbers in, say, Germany, as an example, you see a, a massive spike up and then a relatively low uh, tail from, say, April or May timeframe to today. But there has been an uptick in all of these countries. Every single one of them have had upticks. There's slightly more in certain places, Belgium, uh, Spain, uh, for example, but even Norway, uh, which has been a model, has seen an uptick. And the same is true in other places in Asia and, and Australia is another country that's seen an uptick. So it will be interesting to see what this uptick means in terms of the spread of the virus, what sort of impacts it's going to have in terms of policy, and also how that affects growth going forward. My uh, baseline view is that the numbers are so low at this point that it's not going to have a a, a uh, a huge impact, and that as a result, we'll likely see Europe uh, outperform the United States in Q3 and and perhaps Q4 as well. 
Uh, let's just see how that pans out. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, it's interesting to note, to just to pull back to what you said, the Atlanta Nowcast now at 20.3% positive, off uh, off basically 33% negative on prior quarter. We've never seen swings anything like this. Uh, you know, we have these discussions sometimes. It seems like it's become normal. Uh, it's not normal. These are not normal swings in the numbers. No, not at all. Um, so w- what is my thinking now in terms of the U.S. economy? I think uh, the U.S. economy, the question is, is how does ADP, as you were saying, relate to the jobs numbers that we're going to get out? It, it's hard to say because there's so much uncertainty in terms of the uh, ADP is not very predictive in general of the jobs numbers. It's also not uh, in this particular time, not very predictive because we have these wide swings. But also remember that ADP numbers uh, are, t- are giving you a later uh, view than the actual numbers that we get from the government. The government's numbers are only through halfway into the month. So I would say that we should expect the government's numbers to be better than the ADP numbers. What what I'm looking at in terms of real-time data from a jobs perspective is the unemployment claims numbers, so the initial claims in particular. So I think it will be interesting to see what the numbers look like for that tomorrow because What we've seen actually is the numbers in a seasonally adjusted basis have ticked up three weeks in a row, but actually the non-seasonally adjusted numbers have gone down. That is, they've gone down from 1.5 million down to, I believe the last number I saw was something like 1.2 million. So that's a decline, an actual decline of 300,000 initial claims over that period of time. if if that continues into this week, we might actually get a uh, a decline in the seasonally adjusted number as well because the the adjustment factors aren't as great. But yes. my expectation is is that we are going to see continued pressure on uh, jobless claims and that the number may end up being uh, greater than we would want it to be. Yeah, and you know the seasonal adjustment factor distortions were a party that you were early to as well. I know we've talked about this extensively. You printed up a spreadsheet that you and I looked at. Could you explain when you're talking about how the seasonal adjustment swing factor is going to be diminishing uh, this time around? Could you explain a little bit, give a little bit of color on what that means and why it matters? Yeah, so basically what happens is, is, is that uh, throughout the year, people are laid off, there are more initial jobless claims at different levels based upon seasonality of employment. And so knowing this, uh, there's an adjustment factor that's decided way ahead of time in order to make it so that you can compare a number in January to a number in September. Otherwise, uh, you know, uh, suddenly you would see a spike up in the number and you'd say, oh, wait a minute, uh, you know, bad things are happening. Or you would see a, a huge shift down and you would think, something else is going on. But we have the statisticians who are able to normalize that over the period. The problem, of course, comes in where actually the 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 normalized number is a fraction of the pandemic number. So you can think of the number of people who would normally uh, actually file for unemployment as this small amount and then a huge amount more as a result of the pandemic. That whole number 
is going to be adjusted by the seasonal factor. And so when you adjust the whole number by the seasonal factor, a distortion gets into the numbers. And we're at a period in time where that seasonal factor is shifting at a very high rate. It's gone from under uh, counting the, the number of people who are actually filing for unemployment claims to over counting. So now we're at an adjustment factor of something like 85 uh, or 80 uh, out of 100. So that means that the number that you get will be expanded by dividing by 80 and then multiplying by 100. And so you get an outsized number. And I believe that it, to the degree that more people are, uh, and, and this is true that we've seen a, a second wave of furloughs, the right. more people that are in the second wave, the more likely, therefore, those uh, pandemic-related uh, furloughs are going to be magnified into the, the the number that we see tomorrow. Yeah, and not only so that adjustment factor is actually shrinking, and then it flips and it goes in the opposite direction. Exactly. Yeah. So you're dividing by the seasonal factor, and even if the seasonal factor is shrinking, it actually because you're dividing by magnifies uh, the number. And to the degree that you have a pandemic-related, non-seasonally adjusted uh, cohort that's very large, then you're going to get a huge uh, increase that is not necessarily um, reflective of the underlying conditions on the ground. Still kills me that they do it as a divisor and not as a multiplier. Because the numbers <laughs> right. Are yeah. I, I, it really bothers me, actually. I'm glad that it bothers you as well. Statisticians have reasons all their own. You know, to pick up on something that you said uh, earlier, these numbers that are coming out uh, tomorrow on Thursday uh, are the weekly employment claims number. Uh, and this is actually an official number. And then on Friday, we've got the NFP number, the non-farm payroll number that comes out with the EMPSIT report, the employment situation report uh, from uh, from the DOL Department of Labor. Right. Bureau of Labor Statistics at DOL, I think. And, you know, I, I think that we'd be remiss if we didn't round out our commentary today with some thinking about uh, the the huge word that someone said we say all the time now bifurcation the no the you know the difference between what's happening in the real economy and what's happening in the market economy I I, I remember earlier in this broadcast you were saying uh, the market's acting like this number uh, doesn't mean anything that shrugged it off maybe actually the market doesn't care because the market is uh, it it, it is a force onto, onto its own. It's run via liquidity. That liquidity means that what happens in the real economy is not necessarily important until it is important. You know, we're, we're still at that point where we don't know what the long-term situation will be, but if the long-term situation is, is demonstrably better than it is today, then the market's gonna rally over time. If it's demonstrably poor at some point in time, that I believe that will feed through into the market, and then the market will adjust as a result of that. But over the the short term, the market's just going to gyrate, and then that's where you get another bifurcation: the bifurcation between the winners of this new normal that we're in and the losers. Uh, and it seems that the tech stocks are are the winners. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Ed. It's like we've got a bifurcation of a bifurcation here. You have the pricing mechanism in U.S. equity markets uh, that bifurcates from the real economy. And then within that, you've got the bifurcation of tech stocks, big cap tech stocks and everything else. Look, I don't know if a chart is worth a, a trillion dollars or a trillion words, but if you look at this chart here uh, that shows uh, the basically the outperformance of Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Facebook relative to the S&P on a year to date basis, it is just absolutely striking. Uh, and when you look at those numbers, I know we talked a little bit about this earlier, uh, you know, it's a relatively slow day in markets today. And I spent a little bit of time just going back and reading the old stories uh, from last week about the, about the uh, earnings reports. And look, these numbers are really striking. I mean, this is, this is I think uh, the Wall Street Journal used a phrase that we're fond of at Real Vision, an embarrassment of riches uh, for technology companies. And this is absolutely what that is. Another way of saying it, a perhaps more cynical way of saying it, would be that these companies are embedded in absolutely every aspect of our day-to-day -day lives. And their performance, their relative outperformance uh, compared to the rest of the market shows how the world is moving uh, toward a paradigm that they profit from immensely. And, you know, that is this, the thing that is going to get them uh, a lot of attention, a lot of negative attention. And we saw that negative attention last week when they were in front of Congress uh, having to explain uh, their so-called anti-competitive practices. And yeah. the interesting bit for me, and, I, you know, we talked about this before we came on, is who was there and how yeah. I'm thinking about who are the beneficiaries of the new normal are. I mean, if I had to rank order the companies that you're talking about, I would rank order Amazon as number one, completely uh, leveraged to the virtual world, the new normal. I would say that Apple is a second behind them. I would say that Facebook is behind Apple and that Google is the laggard, so to speak, because even though they're online, they're very much dependent on the macro economy. You know, advertising has gone down and they have, they're completely leveraged to advertising. And as a result of that, uh, their numbers went down, their top line went down for the first time since they've been a public company. And the interesting bit is the company that I didn't mention, the yeah. one that was not under the gun last week, Microsoft. Yeah. Microsoft had a good uh, earnings report. Microsoft is incredibly leveraged to the internet and they get a free pass. I, I have no idea how they get away with it, but they have done a spectacular job of being able to slip under the radar. This is a trillion dollar company slipping under the radar. Yeah, I, there's there has to be no one more pleased about that than Microsoft management and shareholders. You know, during that uh, during that testimony, Satya Nadella, uh, the CEO of Microsoft, was sitting on his couch in Medina, Washington, or wherever he is, watching this uh, as a spectator. That is a tremendous coup. You know, you pointed out, and we talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, you know, Azure, which is Microsoft's uh, cloud services platform, is absolutely crushing it right now. They're just doing. Uh, gangbusters business. But because it's something that doesn't have uh, direct interface to consumers, because it's basically a B2B product, uh, it's something that there's a lot less interest in from regulators and lawmakers. And for Microsoft, that's a very good thing. You know, the other thing that struck me, and this is something we also talked about, was this idea that while Bill Gates uh, no longer has a formal role at Microsoft. Uh, he is the largest shareholder of that company. And you better believe that one of the smartest people in the world who went through exactly the experience uh, that Facebook is getting right now uh, when he was a young, brash, controversial uh, tech executive remembers in the year 1999, which you and I remember well, uh, that that 
Judge Penfield Jackson antitrust case against Microsoft where it nearly got broken up. And I'm sure that those are lessons that are deeply in his DNA and in the DNA of Microsoft now, how to avoid precisely that type of controversy. Yeah. And, you know, for me, um, the the funny thing about it is, is uh, Penfield Jackson's daughter uh, went to my college and was a roommate of mine, you know, a few years before that, after I, I left college. So, you know, when I saw her dad, uh, you know, taking on Microsoft in a very open way, I, you know, it, it definitely hit home uh, viscerally that, that this was going on. I, I, I completely agree with what you have to say. And the thing that I would um, highlight from your remarks is the part about the consumer business that Microsoft has taken the tack that they're a um, a B two B company. Uh, that's what they that's where they got their bread and butter from from Office. It's actually in the consumer market where they uh, were were crushed. That is, is that the, the monopoly power that they were seen as having was as a result of tying together their consumer business and their uh, their their B two B business. Yeah. Now they've understood that we're we're a business oriented company. We're not going to get into the consumer market. And bravo for them because that allows them to uh, slip under the radar. No one really cares about their data. Um, and it, it's it's great. They'll continue to earn. So I mean, if I had to pick of those companies, the the ones that are most leveraged, other than Amazon, I would say that Microsoft is a company that I would watch and 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 look at. It's also an extraordinarily well-run company. It's a CPA's dream. There are only two uh, companies in the United States right now that have AAA credit ratings. Microsoft is one of them, the other, of course, being J&J. Uh, but this is a very well-run company. I would love to see uh, someone do a piece, uh, a write-up. If I had the time, I'd do it myself to see how much uh, cash Microsoft has thrown off to shareholders uh, over its 30-some-odd years in public markets. It's a pretty astonishing figure. Uh, it's just an incredibly well-run company. You know, and, and that brings up the point of some of the other companies there and what some of their challenges are. I think this, the company that's probably uh, also um, reasonably in good shape is Apple. Um, Apple's, uh, you know, T Tim Cook uh, kind of reminded me of the of the kid who got picked last at Dodgeball uh, during the uh, during the hearings. There, no one wanted to talk to him, which must have made Mr. Cook extremely happy. Uh, the the focus, the heat was elsewhere. Look, uh, Apple caught a little bit of heat, obviously, for their bundling practices uh, for services revenue in uh, the Apple uh, App Store. Uh, basically, Apple takes about a thirty percent rip on the revenue that comes off uh, of other third party developers selling their applications, both for iPhone, uh, iPad, and Mac. But look, this is a this is a growing area for Apple, and services revenue is always a holy grail for tech companies. But the bottom line is, Apple makes money selling products on fat margins. That's a pretty good business to be in. Um, and uh, look, you know, their their quarterly sales increased eleven percent on a year over year basis. Their profits increased twelve percent. Uh, this is despite. Apple stores all across the country uh, being closed, some opening and then closing again. That's a pretty favorable sign for a company, isn't it? It is. You know, and in fact, uh, I, l let me tell you that I bought a um, a mini um, while Apple store, which is probably I would say two miles down the road, uh, a mile and a half down the road, was closed. They shipped it to me. I started it up. This is during the crisis. So the crisis happened. I was forced to come here and uh, I, got, I got myself a new computer from Apple, even though their stores were closed. That's how it works. You know, Apple is in a very 
positive position from that perspective as well. So that's why I would put them at number two. Interestingly, Facebook was talking about uh, Google and you know the fact that they had Android and they were talking about Apple and the fact that they had iOS constantly. Zuckerberg was really throwing zingers at his rivals because yeah. he's the one uh, where I think the biggest risk is. The biggest yeah. risk uh, going forward is for Facebook. Yes. Um, and it's not just the risk um, for them in terms of antitrust, but you think about in terms of um, TikTok as an example, yeah. how they're trying to get a rival to TikTok into Instagram and so forth. They're the, the company that has the least effective moats and I would be most troubled to uh, to own over the long term. And as I say all this, by the way, I'm thinking um, first and foremost about your uh, your friend Aswath Demodoran, who we've talked about, that we need to get him on the show, uh, have him talk to us about this, and uh, do some um, discounted cash flow modeling for us, and tell us what are these companies really worth now in this particular uh, point in time. Can you pay 25 times earnings for uh, Microsoft or Apple, uh, or should you pay 10 times earnings for them? What What's the number? I, I'd be interested to see what he has to say. Yeah, I would be really interested as as well. And uh, yeah, as just to your other point, I, I actually bought an iMac during that period as well, got it delivered to the house, and uh, and life goes on. Look, I think you're spot on also about Facebook. You know, the reality is that the Zuck throwing zingers is is kind of a new thing. That isn't something that we've seen. We haven't seen him throwing shade toward uh, toward some of the other large tech companies. That doesn't strike me as something that's coming from a position of strength. Uh, <laughs> you know, that it seems like a deviation where when you when you're feeling the pressure, when you're feeling the heat, you point out and you go, "Well, look what the guy across the street is doing." That's not a good sign. Um, you know, I also think that from a moat perspective, uh, Facebook has uh, has the, the least defensible position because they're most susceptible to innovation, uh, removing them uh, from their massively dominant position in the social media and social networking space. Why? Because, you know, your son or your daughter can come up with a better Facebook and uh, it could be mobile first. It could be something that I don't know because I'm not young anymore, but people who want to move in that direction. Uh, it's something that is, if you think about Zuck's own origin story, Facebook's own origin story, it's a, it's a couple of smart kids hanging out at a university who come up with an idea. You and I and no one we know is going to disintermediate Apple. It's just not right. Good. And you know, the, the, my view is, is that the antitrust is going to increase over time for these big companies. And that that makes Facebook of all of these companies most vulnerable because basically what they need to do, and the documents have proved this out uh, when they had discovery, is they need to uh, buy their competitors out. You know, you see someone who is a threat, uh, Instagram, let's buy them. You know, you see someone who's a threat, WhatsApp, let's buy them. That's what you do. You have an elevated stock, uh, you buy them out, or in the case of Amazon, which something that Facebook can't do, they just uh, price it cost or below cost and then drive the competitor out of business. But I think that it's the mergers that will actually uh, fall in antitrust more prominently. It yeah. will be interesting to see if this happens under a um, a Trump administration, you know, a Trump two administration, or under a Biden two administration. My view is is that under both regimes, you will get uh, more robust antitrust 
perhaps more robust under a Biden administration than under a Trump administration. Yeah. And I think your bigger point stands, right? Which is it almost doesn't matter at this point. You know, the other layer that I would add to that from Facebook's perspective is it's really a bad sign when AOC and Ted Cruz are both gunning for your CEO. That's not something that happens often. There's almost unanimity uh, among the Washington uh, power elite that the size, scale and reach of Facebook makes them a threat uh, for various reasons, depending upon whether you're coming at it from the perspective of the left or coming at it from the perspective of the right. But the agreement is universal uh, that there is risk in Facebook controlling so much information. So, you know, uh, going forward, uh, just to wrap this up and think about what it, what does this all mean for the markets? I, I'm still of the belief that we're looking at a September to October bogey. Uh, I think that markets can keep ripping through August. Uh, based upon money flows. But I believe that the accumulated uh, information that we receive over the next uh, month, month and a half, will be enough to alter the path of the markets. Whether that means it, it, you have a continuation of upside or suddenly downside risk enters the picture, we'll find out soon. But you know how the fiscal cliff is resolved, what these numbers look like on a weekly basis for jobless claims, what the jobs numbers look like, and also what happens with consumption and production as we go through the second wave, I think is very important. And eventually that's going to mean that fundamentals matter, but it just will take time. Yeah. And you've been remarkably consistent with that time frame, always citing that as the crucial kind of acid test for where we are. You know, I would just add to that, if we could flip up that chart one more time, the uh, chart worth uh, worth a trillion words. Look, you know, this conversation about tech stocks is not just idle philosophical speculation. When you look at those, uh, when you look at those uh, returns to date, uh, the really startling thing, and I should have pointed this out earlier, is that the S&P 500 obviously includes these names. And S&P 500, as shown in this chart, is not net of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, uh, and um, and so what you're seeing is even with those numbers baked in, S and P is still flat. You have massive outperformance uh, from those uh, from those uh, from those stocks. So what does that tell you about the impact that those stocks will have on a broader U.S. equity market valuation? Just wait until Tesla joins the party. Yes, indeed. You know, I don't know if you saw this, but Apple, uh, just to give you an idea of one of the reasons why we follow the S&P and not the Dow. So Apple is going to be doing a four for one split, uh, trading around 400 bucks now, going to be down, uh, I think 440 was the last print I saw. It's going to be down probably closer to 100 after this. This is going to mean that Apple is no longer the largest component in the Dow because the Dow weights on a price weighted basis, which makes absolutely no sense, right? It's literally, there's no actual economic impact to an adjustment from a split. It's just done so that retail investors have, have greater access to the shares. Uh, in the era of fractional share trading, I'm not sure that matters as much anymore, but that's another story. But it does go to show why it's so important uh, to look at the right indexes and understand how they're weighted. 100% agree, Ash. As Nerd usual, it has, it's been fun. Uh, you know, we're not going to do it again tomorrow, but hopefully we'll be back uh, t uh, together on Friday. It's always fun, Ed. See you soon. Take care.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.